Our Father in heaven, we are going to look into the promise and blessing of your word now. We have sung from the Psalms. We pray now, Lord, that you would let us study your truth and that you would use this time to prepare us to sit with joy and thanksgiving at our Savior's table. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to please turn with me to the prophecy of Isaiah and the 43rd chapter. And I included that in the whole chapter in the notes there for you as well. This chapter begins with a beautiful record of God's covenant relationship with Israel and the blessings that come from it. And it's full of symbolism, so I would encourage you as, you as we read it together that you put together in your mind the pictures that are set before you here in this uh, 43rd chapter of Isaiah. And follow along and hear what God says to his people. Verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring, you, bring your offspring from the east, And from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, 
the creator of Israel, your king. Thus so says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. At this point, there's a change in the tone of of the text. Beginning with verse 22, the text takes that turn and it brings before the people the testimony of their unfaithfulness to God. And it's tragic and it stands out all the more starkly because it stands out against all this record we've just read of his faithfulness to them. So we've read this, we've seen it, and it's pictured so beautifully. Now he says, this is what I've done for you, but this is how you now respond to me. Verse 22, you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money with, with money, or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Now that's the Lord's complaint against them. And it can be reduced to a lack of thankfulness that has been exhibited by their abandoning prayer, their giving up sacrifice, and their finding no joy in the worship of the Lord. And at the same time, they are freely embracing sin. So they're abandoning prayer, they're giving up sacrifice, they're finding no joy in worship and embracing sin. And it's at this point that the Lord brings something that is rather chilling before them. Think for a moment, what does it mean to burden the Lord God with sin and to weary him with iniquity? I think that our first inclination is to imagine that those are expressions meant to convey that they tested his patience with their iniquity. Uh, their, their failure to give thanks and worship and their willingness to sin, that all of that became a burden for him. That he looked to them for gratitude and for reverent worship, but instead they showed boredom and weariness with the Lord. That he looked for them to offer grateful and loving obedience, but instead they indulged in one sin after another, testing the tolerance of God. Now, while that's true, beloved, and that is a part of what's being said here, 
it doesn't quite reach the point, given the context here. Look at what it says next in verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. You see, beloved, the Lord does not just bear with their sin. No, he is going to bear those sins. Bear the sins of his chosen people. The very language he uses here reflects the work of the Son of God on the cross. He says in verse 24, you've burdened me down. You've made me to labor under the weight of your sins. And it's not just putting up with them. It is bearing the burden of them. Because you see, they can't possibly be forgiven unless there is some payment for their sins. And that payment has to be made by God himself. Through the person of his son on the cross. There's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And so it's not just tolerating their disobedience. It's having to bear the weight of that disobedience in paying the penalty for their sins. Peter says that Christ suffered for, that when Christ suffered for us, he was the one who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The Lord says here back in Isaiah, you have set me to gasping under the weight of your sins, so that they might be blotted out and remembered no more. You remember in the garden with the cross before him, we're told the Son of God being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and he sweat what became great drops of blood falling down to the ground, gasping under the weight of bearing that sin, not just putting up with it, Bearing it, bearing the cost for its forgiveness. Your God, beloved, carried and bore the sin of the elect on his own shoulders. And in a sense, our every sin makes the burden heavier. Now the last section of the prophecy here back in Isaiah 43 now calls on Israel to demonstrate if they have behaved otherwise. In this last section, the Lord says, this is what I'm accusing you of. You're not praying, you're not making sacrifice, and you're not worshiping with me with joy. You're embracing every manner of sin. Now, I'm giving you the chance to defend yourselves. But because there's no argument against the Lord, he pronounces his judgment without waiting for an answer. He doesn't say, I'm going to give you a chance to explain this. He doesn't because there is no explanation. He knows it and they know it. And so in verse 26 now we read, Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. 
Set forth your case that you may be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. There is no real defense here. There's no argument against what I just said. And that's why judgment is falling on you. Now, with that, we have the grand sweep of this chapter. Okay? And it's, it's beautiful. And uh, it, it, with that sweep in mind, with the, the whole of the text in mind, I want to just narrow it down to a consideration of verses 19 through 21 as we come to the Lord's table this morning. In verse 19, the Lord says, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Our finite minds are so often challenged by the quick, powerful, and sharp two-edged sword of God's word. We're just challenged to try to understand what is set before us. There's so much here, so much to be understood, so much to be grasped, and so much to be obediently utilized by us. It's clear to the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to open and apply the word to our hearts. Because we simply are not equipped for the task, beloved. Not by our nature and not by our capacity to grasp the whole of what's before us. This work of the Holy Spirit was really beautifully set forth in the Song of Solomon. In the Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 5 and verse 4, it says, My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, opening our hearts to the Word of God, to the truth of God's Word. He puts his hand upon the latch of our heart, and when he does, our hearts are just thrilled with what his Word brings to us. The Lord is himself is the one who says in Ezekiel, and this is chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I'll put that heart in you, that heart of flesh, And then I will write on that heart of flesh my word, and you will be blessed by it. We see a very practical example of this truth in the story of Lydia's conversion. You remember Lydia is the seller of purple. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 14, it says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention for to give heed or to give heed to what was said by Paul. 
And she believed and embraced the truth of the gospel. Now, as I say, this ability to get this in mind and heart is true on the one hand because our capacity is limited. It's limited by sin and by our nature. And so we need the hand of God opening our hearts, setting his hand upon the latch and opening our hearts. And on the other hand, we need it because this is the word of the living and the true God. What we are seeing here, what we are handling here, isn't the common speech of men or the words of a poet. This is the word of God. And just by its very nature, as the, God, as the word of God, we need the Spirit to open our hearts to it so that we can embrace the fullness of it. This word is a treasure chest filled by and with the wisdom of God, and we need God to communicate that truth to us just because of the profound nature of it. In Psalm 12, in verse 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. I hope you never make the mistake, beloved, of imagining that the little prayer from Psalm 119 and verse 18 is just for children. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. We teach that verse to children. But I think when we mature, we tend to forget it. If God is not opening your eyes to see wondrous things, you will not see them, beloved. If he's not laying his hand upon the latch and opening your heart and thrilling it with his word, it won't come to you that way. This is the work of God in us. Now, when we look at the words of these verses... In the context of the text, what you're looking at here uh, is a testimony that hints, and I'm talking about the whole text now, all of Psalm 43, or rather Isaiah 43. When you're looking at it, talks about uh, Abraham's journey from Ur to the promised land, the return of Israel from Egypt to uh, the same land, the return of Judah and Israel from the Babylonian captivity to the promised land. And all of that, those examples, are pictures of the Lord's calling us out of the misery of sin and death and the bondage of Satan into the blessing of the forgiveness of our sins, into the blessing of salvation and redemption, the the hopes of eternity enjoying the full promises of God in this covenant word to us. These are pictures of that greater work. Now, you see the question that's put here in verse 19. The Lord says, first of all, Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Let's talk about this new thing, first of all. When speaking of the God that we are worshiping here this morning, we often refer to him as the one who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we can think or ask. 
You hear me say that often. That description is taken from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, where Paul, in a great benediction there in Ephesians 3, says, Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now, beloved, because our God, your God, is truly God, he is able to perform, to, to freely act upon all his holy will. He is able to do things that have been promised or prophesied, but which otherwise are holy without precedent. Because he's God. And what we mean by that for, those, for the children who are with us, is that God is able to do things that have never been done before by anyone. They might be foretold in God's word. He might talk about them. might talk about them happening. But they've never been done before. And he is able to do that because he is able to do all his holy will because that's who he is as God. We tend to judge the probability of things on the basis of whether anything like it has been done before. We even judge that with things that we think are improbable. You know, we say, well, that's probably couldn't happen, but we've seen other things we didn't think could happen, and they happen, so maybe it, maybe it can. With God, this whole idea takes on a whole new dimension a whole different view of judgment because he has proven to be the one with whom all things are possible regardless of any precedent in human history. It doesn't matter whether you've ever seen anything like this before. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether in all your experience you think this could probably happen. That has nothing to do with it. It all has to do with God and who God is. So what does he say here? Look, take note, behold, observe, pay attention. I am doing a new thing. Something never seen or done ever before. Something never begun before. Something that is of an entirely new beginning. John Gill says, a wonderful and unheard of thing, and therefore introduced with a behold as a note of admiration. Now this part of the wonder of who God is as God, this ability he has to do whatever he pleases in heaven or in earth, enables him to promise to do things that have never been seen before. He has the wisdom, he has the power to accomplish whatever he wills. And he is even able to do things for which there is no promise or no prophecy, as well as for which there is no precedence. So he says here, look, I am going to do something new. It's never been done before. And then he says next, 
It springs forth. He describes this new thing, which he's doing, as being like the new seed uh, in the ground, ready to break out of the surface of the earth. Now, I know that uh, many of you have had the experience suggested by these words. You get an egg carton, or you get a set of starter cups, or perhaps you just dig a strip of ground open on the earth, and you plant your seed in it. And if you're doing that for the first time, it's especially fun to do it with children. If you're doing it for the first time, the children see that seed go in the ground, how often do they check it? Yeah, constantly, right? They're looking, looking to see if that seed is going to break forth the ground. And you, you check it every day, maybe a few times every day. What you're waiting for is for that sprout to break the surface of the earth. But sometimes, maybe for a week or more, you check it and the earth seems undisturbed. And you begin to wonder if the seeds maybe didn't take or if you buried them too deeply. But then, even though the last time you looked, it, the top of the, of the earth didn't look any different, all of a sudden you look, and even though it seemed like nothing was happening, that uh, sprout pops out of the earth. And there it is. And you see it. And it springs forth. The last time you looked, it didn't look like anything was going on. But just below the surface, full of energy and all the potential to grow and to bloom and to climb and to fruit, was that little sprout or branch ready to make the final push out of the earth. The Lord says here, in the days of Isaiah, that this new thing that he's doing is just like that. It's a new sprout or plant ready to spring forth. In fact, it's already beginning to do so, swelling with power and energy. And when I say that, beloved, it's an understatement because what is about to happen is the beginning of things that are not yet finished. So this is the beginning of something that has not yet been wholly completed. I mean now, in our day. What is about to happen is the recall of Israel to the land of promise from their captivity under Babylon. In anticipation of that day, the Lord said through the prophet of Jeremiah, even before they were taken captive, this is before they were even taken captive, but through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord says this in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will utterly have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. 
Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel. Return to these your cities. You've got to get the picture there, and I, I, I don't want to drag this out too long, but you have to get the picture here. The Lord's saying through his prophet, while you're on the way out, on your way to captivity, set up road markers so you can find your way back, because I'm bringing you back. They haven't even gone yet. The Lord says, I'm bringing you back. Okay. Now verse 22. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. There's that new thing. See it? A woman encircles a man. Hmm. What do you think that means? A woman's going to encircle a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once more, they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. What are the words? The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. So already, they're not even, haven't even gone yet, and the Lord's saying, make sure you set up road markers on the way out so you know how to get back, because I'm bringing you back. Because I'm going to do a new thing. That's never been done before. And beloved, this going into captivity and being called back out of Babylon is only the beginning of this new thing. Israel will return. Israel will take possession of the land. Israel will be, rebuild Jerusalem. Israel will rebuild the temple. And then, suddenly... And without any precedent, as the Lord says by the prophet Zephaniah, or Zechariah, excuse me, here now, behold, I will bring my servant the sprout, or the branch, same word. Behold, now I will bring my servant the branch. In Malachi, he says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You see what is being set up here? You're being called back from, from the captivity, no longer with a heart and mind and soul given over to idolatry, but given to me. You will come back to Jerusalem, you will rebuild the city, you will rebuild the temple, and then this new thing that I am already beginning to do, this new thing will begin to to take real form, because the branch, the sprout, will be born in Bethlehem. The Redeemer and the Savior. And here's the new thing. I am sending my own Son to bear your iniquities. To carry the burden of your sins. To redeem you from sin and death. And to give you life. And nowhere in the whole history of mankind has there been anything like this. You look out over the history of mankind. And you look at the gods that men have created. There is not one. Not one among them all. 
who has done anything like this come in the person of his own son and sacrificed himself for his people. All the other religions of the world, beloved, require you to do something for your God. This new thing is your God does something for you. Something that you cannot do for yourself. He comes and he bears your sins. That through that sacrifice you might have forgiveness. It is a new, it is a wonderful thing. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, you probably haven't noticed this yet, but in Zechariah and in Malachi and now here in Isaiah, all three of those begin with the word behold, right? Right. Same as we have here in Isaiah 43. Behold, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We come down to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. We read there, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. A woman encircled a man. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here then is the new thing, beloved. As Gill says, it is the incarnation of the Son of God who took flesh of a virgin, appeared in the likeness of sinful flesh, and was made sin and a curse for his people in order to obtain eternal redemption for them. It wasn't new in the sense of planning and the purpose of God. That was already designed before the foundations of the earth from all eternity. It wasn't new as though it had never been spoken of before. No, it was promised since the fall. But it was new in this sense. No such thing had ever yet been done. Nothing so gracious and excellent as this, beloved. Nothing that could bring to you and me the promise of salvation, could bring to us justification, could bring to us the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. Now you notice the third thing he says is, do you perceive it? Do you perceive it? He asks, do you not see it? Can't you feel the tension, the energy, the potential? My love for you is great. My word and my promise are pregnant and ready to bring forth what is promised. My glory is ready to be manifested. 
The Redeemer is anxious. His face is set like a flint. The coming of the Savior, the sacrifice on the cross, his victory over the tomb. These are all dramatic new things throbbing with energy and ready to spring forth. And the Lord is saying here in Isaiah, even before they're carried off, it's coming. It's new. It's right there. Can't you feel it? Can't you sense it? And when you read through Isaiah 43, all those things that we read about the covenant blessings, doesn't that tell you that there's something great here involved? When you pass through the fire, I'll be with you. When you go through the deep waters, I'll be there. I will not leave you. I love you. You are my people. I am your redeemer. And all the promises there just throbbing in those words. And the Lord says this new thing is about to come to pass. And it can only all come to pass because of what Christ is doing. Because of what Christ did. And going back to the sprouting seed imagery here. The work isn't yet fully done. Like that sprout that grows and it strengthens into a full plant, it flowers. And then what do you look for? The, the fruit. And let me ask you, beloved, can you feel the tension? Can you feel the energy? Because this isn't all done yet, this new thing. The new thing is still unfolding. Your God is not satisfied with just the growth of a plant, with vines and leaves. Not just satisfied with the establishment of a church. No, this is all yet to blossom into the coming day of the Lord and the fullness of all those things that we've been looking at on Sunday evenings. Is summarized in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 51 through 58. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, if we're alive, will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A new thing. Now, my other two points are short. They may not seem like it, but not as long as this. You read in verse, the second part of verse 19, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. John Trapp reminds us, by the wilderness and rivers in the desert, we're to understand the doctrine of the gospel and the comforts of the Holy Spirit in the wilderness of this world. In John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39, we read that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, 
As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. We drink from the wells of salvation when we walk through this wilderness. And I would say to anyone here who is finding this world full of bitter and empty and dry wells, you won't find anything different through your whole life in this world. Because the the supply that will bring rivers of water out of your soul comes from Christ alone. And it's to him that you must come for those blessings. And the Lord has promised, it's the new thing he's done. He sent his son to die for you. That through that act, you might have access to these rivers, to these streams, and drink freely. Throughout the prophecies given about the peoples of Israel and, and Judea being exiled by Babylon, we find references to the wild beasts. They will hunt and haunt his people because of their rebellion and sin. Even Job described himself as a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. He was referring to his life in this world as he endured his trials. That's what what Job was referring to. The jackals and ostriches or owls are also referred to and are used to describe the inhabitants of Babylon. When the people are called home, As this new thing begins to unfold, these creatures and the Babylonians themselves will be witnesses of what God is doing. But again, this matter stretches beyond what these first indications are to greater things. Matthew Henry says it so well. He he speaks of how this picture looks forward to all the instances of God's care of the Jewish church in the latter age, between the return to Jerusalem and the birth of Christ, but it reaches far beyond that and depicts this present age and the coming of the gospel to the Gentiles. This world is like a wilderness, a dry and harsh land. It's unfruitful and it's ignorant. And men and women turn, they run from one empty well to another. But God has graciously provided for us these wells of salvation, streams in the desert, and a river from which the believer can drink and live. In Psalm 46, we have those great words. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Some take the imagery of the wild beasts here and say that um, they are the people who have been violent against God and his truth and in rebellion, and they are subdued by the gospel. But to me, the imagery better fits the context of the prophetic picture as a whole when we look at how that every effort to harm and brutalize the church is turned by God into its blessing. 
The Lord says by the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 34, verse 5, So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And then in verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that has been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on the day of cloud and thick darkness. Now what's the purpose for this new thing that's about to spring forth? This bringing of streams into the desert. Well, that's in verse 21. The people who I formed for myself, I've given them these things that they might declare my praise. That is the people, you people. You are the ones the Lord has formed for himself. And you've been formed to the end that you might preach forth or broadcast or make known his virtues, his grace, his mercy, his justice, his love, all exhibited to you in this new thing that he is doing. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And why? To praise him, to give glory to him, to magnify his virtues, to say this God depicted here in Isaiah 43, he's my God. And this is what he has done for me. The Lord has made all things for himself, beloved, his Israel especially, to be to him for a people and for a name and for a praise. And no otherwise can they be for him or serviceable to him than as his grace is glorified in them, says Matthew Henry. It is therefore our duty to show forth his praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to his service. Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestinated us for adoption as sons sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We're going to come to the Savior's table here now. And we are the ones who have been blessed in the beloved because God has done this new thing and it is not yet finished. And I pray that we can have a sense, even as we sit here, a sense of anticipation that the fullness of all that is promised is just ready to sprout forth. 
and we will enter into the full joy of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for this new thing foretold here, this new thing that you have done for us. And we pray, Lord, that as we sit at the table together, our hearts may be drawn together in praise and honor and glory to you, and that we may show forth your virtues by acknowledging your goodness to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.